Welcome back to Brojo Online. Dan Munro, who's me. Last week I sent out an email to my Brojo audience about relationships and about how our partners are a reflection of ourselves. The email got such a big response that I wanted to go into further detail about the concepts discussed in it. So today we're going to talk about how your partner is you. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So I'll start off by just reading the email that I sent out in case you haven't heard it or seen it. And then I'll go through it and sort of pick it apart in detail and explain some of the points that I'm making there. So here we go. In my all-in group coaching mastermind... We frequently discuss relationships and sometimes dating and what our choice of partner says about us. A truth that has emerged in my own life and reflected in the lives of every other person I observe in this space is that our partners are an accurate reflection of our own psychological growth. In other words, your partner is you. This can be a bitter pill to swallow. Most people in dysfunctional relationships blame their partner for the problems. They see themselves as flawless victims who are being dragged down by a partner who isn't doing what they should. But the fact is, if your partner has issues in the relationship, so do you. And you're each equally dysfunctional. Quite often, I see a kind of yin-yang arrangement. An aggressive person with a passive person. A narcissist with a people-pleaser. An anxious attachment style with an avoidant attachment style. Other times I'll see mirror images, two aggressives, two people pleasers, two avoidance, etc. If your partner's behavior in the relationship is unhealthy and unhelpful, the only thing you can be sure of is that your behavior is also a problem. Even if one of you appears to be the problem while the other, for example you, appears to be the strong, stable one, the fact that you're tolerating a relationship with someone who's dysfunctional means that you are too. The solution. You have three options. Number one, do nothing to change and suffer together. Number two, you work on your issues and you grow together. Number three, you end the relationship. For option two, you must first come to an agreement around 50-50 responsibility. You must each put equal effort into managing your own bullshit while supporting the other to sort out theirs. You must both take ownership of the relationship problems, equally. You'll never be in a healthy relationship that doesn't have conflict, friction, and difficulties. But you can be in a relationship that treats these challenges as a team project that both partners put equal effort into resolving. A final point. One of the best, most accurate measures of how far you've come in your journey to build confidence and integrity is the partners you choose. If they're still showing signs of disrespect, then you don't fully respect yourself yet. If they're still deceptive, then you're not fully honest yet. If they're still avoidant of intimacy, then you're not yet comfortable with it yourself. Move up together, or move on alone. So that was the email. And obviously it's kind of a overlook, an overview if you will, of some pretty big topics, some pretty key issues in relationships. So I'm going to kind of pull it apart now. I haven't really planned this. I'm just going to speak freely. 
and have a look at the different points I'm making and try to make them a little more comprehensive. I'll start from the beginning. I talk about a truth that's emerged in my own life and reflected in the lives of every other person. Now what I mean by this is, when I first read the book No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover, he made a little point in that book. He says, you can have two healthy people in a relationship, or you can have two unhealthy people, but you'll never have one of each. And that was like a bullet to the brain for me. It hit me so hard, because I'd always seen myself as the healthy one. I guess, or the strong one, and I'd always seen my partners as the kind of weak link in the relationship. But when he said that, I realized instinctively, before I had even reflected on my previous relationships, that he was absolutely right. Because I'd seen that everywhere else. You never had like a functional person with a dysfunctional person. You had often relationships that look like that. It looks like one person's crazy or aggressive or really a loose cannon, and the other person's the rock, you know, the stable one keeping everything together. But when you look at it properly, you'll see that that so-called stable one must have issues for the very fact that they're staying with the unstable one. They're quite often fixers, or they like to put on a performance to look stable so that they get approval from others. And all of this undermines the stability of what they're presenting. It shows that deep down they're very insecure. And when I looked back over my own life, I realized, yeah, that describes me pretty well. I always look like the rock, the emotionally unaffected one, the one who's easygoing and nothing phases him. But that was a lie. It was a lie I told others, or at least expressed to others in various forms. And it was also a lie I kind of told myself. I think back to my first ever relationship, my first proper one. She looked quite emotional, not unstable, but certainly. Uh, shall we say, fluctuating, whereas I, was the stum, whereas I was the calm, steady rock. But what people couldn't see is underneath the calmness was an almost constant anxiety and planning and strategizing and reacting and constantly trying to keep the peace. Huge effort was going on behind that very passive, placid outer layer. And I told myself I was the calm, steady, unaffected, easy-going one, which created a kind of contradiction, a predicament in my head that was hard to work around, where I'd simultaneously say I'm the calm one whilst knowing that I'm anxious. So I kind of had to try and reconcile that. I had to lie to myself about who I was, which was, you know, essentially the main problem in my entire life when I was younger. I was constantly not knowing who I really was and lying to myself about it. When I look out, not only do I see relationships as, you know, in the same way that everyone sees them, they see their friends, their family in relationships, but I've also coached people on relationship issues, so I've been allowed to see in behind the scenes and get a deep dive. And I am absolutely convinced that Dr. Glover was right. If your partner is dysfunctional, psychologically unhealthy, showing major issues, you have them too. Maybe not the same issues, but you got your own, to an equal level, even if it's not as obvious. I also noticed that there's something quite bizarre about attraction. I used to think attraction was kind of, well, it's not a choice, and 
It was something that was based mostly on physical attributes and some other preferences. And it kind of didn't matter where you were in your growth or in your life. You just attracted the, the same thing. You've got your flavor. From something as sort of simple as shallow as only being into black chicks through to something like, you know, you're like a voluptuous woman or you're like a skinny woman. And there's all these very sort of superficial layered, superficial skin deep preferences. But what was interesting is as I worked on myself and started to sort out my own psychological issues, who I was attracted to started to change. I started to lose interest in the girls that I previously used to be obsessed with and started to gain interest in girls that I previously overlooked. And it wasn't so much physical. What I came to realize is that it was much more psychological. For example, I used to be really attracted to girls only to find out later that they were quite unstable, quite emotionally kind of dysfunctional. But how was I able to see that in them and be attracted to it when I haven't even met them yet, you know, within the first couple of minutes of observing them? And yet that constantly happened. All the girls I was attracted to ended up being quite dysfunctional women. And I realized I'm somehow seeing that. I'm somehow attracted to it. And I'm seeing it without really realizing how I'm seeing it. Now what I'm going to say next might sound a bit disparaging about single mothers. And I really want to start with a caveat. Being a single mother does not mean that you're dysfunctional. Okay. There are plenty of very highly functional, confident, wonderful single mothers that I've known in my life. However, in my experience... The ones that I hooked up with when I was younger were dysfunctional. And what was bizarre, I'd go to a nightclub, there'd be hundreds of women there, or at least dozens, and somehow, every time, I would pick a single mother. They're not wearing a little badge to say I have a kid or anything like that, and they're almost certainly in the minority. I'd say most of the women at a nightclub don't yet have children. And yet I always found the one who did, without even knowing. So, put it this way, I think the kind of single mother that you find at a nightclub at 3am partying and on drugs is probably dysfunctional, okay? And it's that niche of single mothers who are dysfunctional. And I used to pick them out of the crowd like I had some sort of psychic ability. Like some part of me wanted a single mother and found them without even being able to know by just physically looking at someone who had kids and who didn't. Again, I've really got to emphasize, not having kids doesn't mean that you're functional, and having kids without a partner doesn't mean that you're dysfunctional. But the ones I found certainly were dysfunctional. So when I reflected over all this, when I was working on myself, I realized I've got this pattern of choosing unhealthy partners, and I'm able to do it within 30 seconds of meeting someone. I'm literally physically attracted to psychologically unhealthy people without even being able to know their mind. It somehow must show through micro-expressions or body language or just where I am when I'm choosing people. I'm making this pattern happen. Now, at first, I used to just think, well, all women are crazy, so it doesn't matter who I choose because everyone I choose ends up being crazy kind of thing. And crazy, I know, is a bit of a derogatory term, but they were, let's just say, psychologically not functioning very well. Okay, psychologically unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy. And I used to think, well, they must all be like that because I'm just randomly, arbitrarily choosing the girls that I like. So 
I should get the wide range and wide variety of women. So if they're all the ones I'm getting are dysfunctional, that must mean all women are. And there are a lot of guys who think this way. Fast forward 10 years. When I've got my shit sorted, suddenly all the women I'm dating are highly functioning and confident and healthy and doing good things with their lives, have great personalities. All these other women that I didn't even know existed that you don't find at a nightclub at 3 a.m. When they've got a kid, you know, they're home taking care of the kid. So I came to realize, look, I don't know how I'm doing this. It's almost like magic, but something in me resonates with dysfunction and is attracted to it. And it's attracted to me. I don't mean that all dysfunctional people find me attractive, but the people who did find me attractive were also dysfunctional, at least the ones that I ended up hooking up with in any way. So that was my own life, and then I saw that repeated in the lives of everybody else I observed. You know, the person who tends to get in fights with their partner also happens to find partners who tend to get in fights with their partners. Dysfunctional people just seem to gravitate towards each other. And what I didn't see for a long time is that the opposite is also true. Functional, healthy people tend to gravitate towards each other. But the two sides kind of never meet. You don't actually have a well-functioning, healthy person with a dysfunctional person. You'll have someone who appears to be functioning better than their partner. But, almost certainly under the surface, that person is equally kind of messed up. And if you're still not sure that I'm correct on this, ask yourself this. Why would a confident, highly functioning, healthy person settle for something less than confident, healthy, and functioning. If they've got that available to them, why would they go and pick someone who isn't that? Why would they choose, essentially, a worse partner than what's available to them? It doesn't make any sense logically. It doesn't even make sense biologically. The only thing that makes sense is if they're choosing that, they're finding their ilk They're connecting with the thing that's at the same level as they are. So when I was with someone, I often appeared to be very much sorted out and in control. You know, I'd get commiseration from others like, oh, your partner's crazy. How do you put up with it? You must be so strong. What I didn't admit to them or to myself is like, actually, I'm really needy to fix people. I need to control someone and feel like I'm the big man and the strong one and the unaffected one. Because otherwise I worry about who I am as a person. So I go and find these dysfunctional women so that they can sort of match my dysfunction. But I didn't even know that was happening, so I couldn't even be honest about it, even if I wanted to be. As far as I was concerned, I was just randomly finding people and they all happened to be crazy. If you have a pattern of unhealthy relationships... If you have a pattern of partners that behave in a certain way of poor treatment or disrespect or anything of that ilk, the answer is looking you in the face in the mirror. You are the common denominator. It's one of the most obvious things in the world. If your relationships are constantly fucked up, you're the one thing that's the same in all of those relationships. You're the most likely cause and effect sort of system happening here. And I know this is a really hard pill to swallow. Like I said in the email, it's hard to go, you know what? I'm not unlucky. I'm getting exactly what I asked for. I just didn't realize I was asking for it. I didn't realize that being who I was asked for it. You know, I was first made aware of this when I used to work with battered women. 
In my old job, I used to work a lot of women who are victims of domestic violence and a lot of their partners. You know, I worked with a lot of violent guys. And it used to blow my mind. I've told this story many times before, I guess. How often the woman would put six months into finally leaving the guy. Finally respecting herself enough to get up and walk away and take the necessary safety precautions to protect herself and her children. And then within weeks, she's with a new guy who's exactly the same. Another abuser. The violent guys themselves. Yeah, there are those who just like to beat up women, but most guys are just more suffering from anger management issues. If you don't wind them up, they're not going to be violent. That's not putting blame on the victim, it's just the nature of the interaction. There are guys who will only hit a woman who really winds them up. And these kinds of guys would find a woman who constantly wound them up. The most common scenario I saw in domestic violence was very much 50-50. You'd have a woman who knows that this is the kind of guy who hits women, and yet she would poke and prod and tease and taunt and twist the knife into his psychological wounds, and then she'd get hit. And this guy, he would leave that partner and then he'd find another one just like her. He'd leave that one and find another one just like her. I was like, you know what, this is not a fluke. Okay, this is not just some string of bad luck. This I'm watching some sort of system. I'm, I'm seeing a design, a process play out time and time again, a repetitive process. The factors must be the same. So... If you want to know about how well you're doing psychologically, you need to look across at your partner. Okay, and look at yourself in the mirror. And go, is there anything wrong here? What are the warning signs? Am I seeing red flags? Especially patterns. People you're dating tend to flake on you. That's a pattern. You know, the woman that you sleep with tend to be really clingy and crazy afterwards. That's a pattern. You know... The guys you sleep with they never call you back. That's a pattern. And the pattern is you. As hard as it is to swallow, you'd love to say, well, I'm just a poor victim who's unlucky in love. No, you're not. You're not. You're unlucky in that you can't see that you're doing this. But you're lucky as in as soon as you can see it, you can do something about it. The success of your love life and your friendships and family relationships Depends on you getting your own shit sorted, because if you do that, the external stuff will get sorted. I didn't start meeting healthy partners and healthy friends until I got my own shit sorted. As I mentioned in the email, people in dysfunctional relationships are always looking to blame the partner because they're only ever looking outwards, aren't they? You're only ever seeing what they do. And it's hard to notice that sometimes, or often, what they're doing is a reaction to what you're doing. Or that you've somehow orchestrated it. It's amazing how often you'll subconsciously manipulate your partner into poor behavior. You know, guilt tripping them until they act crazy, and then you go, oh my god, you're so crazy. Or being really unreliable, unfair on them, and then go, oh my god, look at the big reactions they have. Or you go, oh, my partner's so jealous, and she's always checking my phone and stuff, and yet when you walk with her, you're always staring at the ass of the girl in front of you. And you don't see that. You don't see your bit that you're doing that provokes the thing that they've got. Or it might be the other way around. You might see yourself as this kind of broken thing. You're always the fuck up in your relationships, you tell yourself. You're the loser. 
and your partners are these flawless gods or goddesses. You can't believe that they tolerate you in any way. They must be perfect, but you're just this monster. Well, why are they with you then if they're so perfect? If they're so confident and healthy, how come they choose someone like you for a partner? Because maybe they're not either. Because maybe you're seeing their version of fucked up. Maybe they like being with fucked up because they're fucked up. I'm not trying to disparage your self-worth here. But you don't build self-worth from being untruthful. You build it from facing the facts. If you're fucked up, you got to face it. It's not permanent. It's not a life sentence. It can be managed and dealt with. I've done it with my shit. I've helped thousands or at least hundreds of other people do it with theirs. Okay, but it can't be done until you look in the mirror and you go, look, evidence is pointing towards fucked up. i got to deal with this. All my partners are fucked up. That means I am. Case closed. So what I talked about in the email is there's kind of two types of partnerships I see, either the yin-yang or the mirror. So the yin-yang is when different types or opposing types are with each other. I want to talk a little bit about that. Because as much as I'm kind of opposed, I guess, to typing people or stereotyping people, putting people into these arbitrary, often quite made-up categories, it can actually be quite helpful. Like when I started realizing I have this thing called nice guy syndrome and I typed myself as like an extrovert show-off nice guy, it gave me this platform to work with. Okay, well, that's my problem. So now I can figure out the solution. It defined the problem for me. And so I'm going to go through some of the types I see. Some of them are kind of ones I've made up and others are ones that are like validated in psychological theory and kind of a mixture of both. But if you know what type you are, then you'll be able to quickly identify the problematic behaviors that come with being that type, which are the kind of behaviors you can learn to manage and moderate, and also to learn to understand the beliefs underneath them that cause the behaviors. Aggressive and passive. So quite often, I've got quite a few nice guy clients who are in the very much passive space. You know, they're followers, not leaders. And they kind of just take the path of least resistance, especially in relationships. They just, yes, dear, you know, whatever you want, whatever's good. I'm good with anything. Nothing ever bothers me. You choose that kind of thing. They're almost always with a partner who's far more aggressive. I'm, I'm often contacted like almost on a weekly basis by women who are frustrated with their passive partners. And as I get to know the woman, I'm like, ooh, this one's a firecracker. The woman in these relationships often quite demanding, nagging, controlling, make all the decisions, criticize the guy a lot, constantly pushing him under the thumb, constantly pushing him under the thumb without even wanting to. And they just tend to find partners like this. They repel people who have assertiveness, people who like to hold boundaries and respect themselves, and they attract guys who just are meek and eager to serve. So I see that arrangement a lot. You know, my work would bias me towards seeing nice guys and aggressive girls, but I have no doubt it goes the other way, probably even more so. I've seen that a lot in my own social life. The aggressive, dominant, bullying type guy with the little kind of waif, the passive, submissive, whatever you want, fine, honey kind of girl, you know. I've even seen it in kind of like a race thing. There's like 
You know, there's that thing where a lot of white guys are really into Asian girls. I always found that kind of weird because Asian is such a broad range. How can you be into Asian? Like Asian's a lot of different things. Everything from Indian to Korean to Balinese. But what I realize is what a lot of Asian cultures have in common is a kind of submissive, submissive, subservient female archetype. The woman, at least portrayed in the media, is being quite submissive. And I think a lot of aggressive type guys find that really attractive. They like to be the dominant one. Or it's the only woman where they don't feel insecure and inferior. They like to be the one who's the big, bold one making the decisions and being the extrovert socially and you know carrying their partner, essentially. Another classic arrangement I see is the narcissist with the people pleaser. This one, I mean, you can take this one to the bank. I see it over and over and over again. Now, when I say narcissist, I've got to be clear on that term. Because it doesn't necessarily mean narcissistic personality disorder, you know, or antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy. That's the extreme range. But I am certainly talking about those people as well. When I'm saying narcissist, like lowercase n narcissist, I basically mean a self-centered, selfish person. Okay. Person with low empathy. Person very much worried about getting their needs met first and foremost and always. A person who doesn't really care if what they do harms or affects other people negatively as long as they get what they want. You know, I saw a lot of these types of guys in the pickup artist community when I was into all that stuff. They didn't really care who the woman was, they just called her a seven or a nine. And all they cared about was getting their dick wet and telling their friends about it. And they're quite happy to hurt feelings and break hearts in order to do that. These guys might not have necessarily been full-blown psychopaths, usually just traumatized, you know, mistreated when they were younger, bullied, and a big grudge on their shoulder, you know, a big chip on their shoulder, resentful, looking to get revenge, so on. That type of person, me first and always, is often very attractive to the people-pleaser, the kind of person who's everybody else first and always. The self-sacrificer. The person who takes thrill, or gets a thrill, from suffering in order to please somebody else. Very specific type of people-pleaser, really. People-pleaser is a big umbrella. There's lots of different types underneath it. But the ones who like narcissists, the ones who kind of, they're subconsciously looking for someone who's going to take up all their bandwidth. Someone who's going to be needy, and demanding, and domineering kind of person who's going to borrow heaps of money and never pay it back. The kind of person who's going to ask heaps of advice and never take it. The kind of person who's going to talk about themselves all the time and never ask about you or show any real interest in your feelings. People pleasers magnetize towards that shit. So lots of different reasons, but one of the main ones is people pleasers looking for someone they can serve. And I don't mean that in a good way, but more like in a slave type way. They're both getting what they want out of this. Don't feel too sorry for the people pleaser. For them, this is their version of control. They like to find someone they can control via pleasing. And somebody's just a black hole that you can throw all kinds of value into and it never comes back out. The narcissist. People pleasers prefer that person because you can never give too much. They're never, they're never satisfied. You can always give more to them. 
So the people pleaser never runs out of usefulness, which is what they're really looking for. They get to feel like they're worth something because they take care of someone without realizing there's no taking care of this person. They just suck and suck and suck until there's nothing left. So that's a really common combination. And the funny thing is, you can be either of these in different relationships. Quite often somebody who's been with a narcissist is so hurt by the experience that they can even transform into a narcissist themselves. You know, the next relationship, fuck them, it's going to be all about me. Or somebody who was narcissistic, or at least a little self-centered, loses a great partner and they're so worried about it that they become a people pleaser in the next relationship because they're so scared of losing them, and so on. So quite often we can flip between these different types, we can go from one to the other, especially when we're trying to get revenge or we feel guilty about the consequences of behaving in a certain way. And another type that I really want to talk about most is based on attachment theory. I recommend you Google the book Attached, and then you get it on Amazon. I haven't read this book myself, but I've had so many people recommend it as being basically the book to learn about attachment theory. I got most of my learning um, from my degree in psychology and other reading I've done since then. There's a secure attachment style. I won't even go into that too deeply, but it's what it sounds like. Secure, confident, healthy, a good functional relationship. That's what we're heading towards, but most people are one of the other two styles, which is either anxious or avoidant. Now, I'm, by default, I'm an avoidant, and that's something I have to manage. So, consciously and subconsciously, I spent much of my time, you know, before I found my wife at least, basically sabotaging any connection that might have got too intimate, you know. I did everything I could to avoid being smothered or suffocated by love. I was very avoidant of that. I, I quite enjoyed, in a sense, I enjoyed being single. I used to complain about it, but really I was just complaining about not getting sex. If I had got lots of sex, I wouldn't have complained about being single. But being able to make all my own decisions and never having to consider somebody else's feelings and doing whatever I wanted all the time, that was my heaven. To have somebody else where I have to worry about them, and, you know, I don't feel like I'm totally free to do whatever I want, and they feel a bit clingy or needy, that used to create like a suffocating reaction in me. I really, really didn't like it. And that comes from childhood, comes from being kind of, had very strict parents when I was younger. And so for me, love felt suffocating and restricting. And I just yearned for freedom, and freedom meant getting away from people I loved, and that's how I kind of translated it. Plus, I also had a little bit of bullying when I was very young, and I quickly learned to, if I kept like a detached persona, the funny kid, or the smart kid that nobody could get close to, I didn't get hurt. So I learned quickly that being avoidant and detached prevented pain. So this combination of seeking freedom and avoiding pain created this avoidant attachment style. I'd be very interested in someone who was unavailable. I used to always try to sleep with girls who already had boyfriends and, like I said before, like dysfunctional single mothers who didn't have time for a real relationship or couldn't, couldn't make a real relationship work or people who are emotionally distant and you couldn't connect with them. I found that very, very attractive. As soon as it was reciprocated, as soon as somebody actually liked me back and wanted to spend time with me and get to know me, all of a sudden my lust for them just fell away. All of a sudden I'm thinking, you know what, maybe they're not exactly my type and 
I'm quite busy right now with my life, and maybe I'll take some back tomorrow. And I just feel this kind of repulsion. I even came to realize, you know, I suffered a lot of uh, anxiety-induced erectile dysfunction when I was younger. Just whenever I was going home to sleep with a girl I actually liked, my gear just wouldn't work. And I used to think this was a physical problem. Then I went to the doctor and he confirmed it's definitely not physical. It's just psychological. And I used to think it was kind of an anxiety thing. Like, I used to tell myself I really did want sex and that, you know, my body was letting me down. But what I realize now is that this is actually a subconscious avoidance strategy. My my equipment worked just fine when I'm with a girl I wasn't actually into emotionally. But I didn't really like the girl that much, wasn't interested in having a relationship with her. I had no problems in the bedroom. But if I liked the girl and I was interested in something happening, all of a sudden my stuff doesn't work. And I came to realize my body is actually trying to protect me because sex is such an intimate connection. Or at least I thought it was. It was kind of like the ultimate really vulnerable conversation you can have with someone. So my body prevented that conversation from happening with anyone there where there might have been a risk that I could get hurt. So that's an avoidance style. You do everything you can to avoid letting someone get in and hurt you, and you're trying to keep that detached distance from people. Even if you tell yourself a different story, you say, I want a partner, or even I want sex, you're telling yourself you want all these connections and intimacy with people, but your behavior says otherwise. You're sabotaging it, you're kind of flaky, you're procrastinating, whatever you do, you're always trying to kind of put it off, seeking unavailable people, whatever it is. The anxious attachment style is, of course, the counter, the opposite pole of the magnet. Needy, clingy, desperate, constantly chasing, over-investing, people-pleasing, doing anything to keep someone, tolerating poor behavior. Basically the opposite of avoidance. You chase and chase and chase until you chase them away. These are the people like, you'll have known people all your life, you think they're really confident, and yet they put up with getting cheated on like over and over again. And you're sitting there like, how can this confident person tolerate such poor behavior? Well, you know, the really confident woman who tolerates getting beaten by her partner goes back to him, forgives him. And you're sitting there going, how? I thought she's like, what the fuck? Until you realize she's got an anxious attachment style, which she would rather suffer than lose somebody. She'll stay with someone she doesn't even like as a preference over being single. These people are chronically either desperate for a partner or never without a partner. These are the kind of people who are like serial monogamous. They go from one long-term relationship to another with only like a couple of weeks in between. They're the people like, if you don't text them back, they get worried straight away. You know, they're the people, if you're in a bad mood, they take it personally every time. You know, what's wrong? Was it me? Did I do something? That's the anxious attachment style. As it sounds, it's anxious. You're worried. You know, the the past trauma is usually around neglect and abandonment or the fear of that. Maybe they had emotionally distant parents. They were left out at school, whatever. Being away from people, not having someone there for them was extremely painful. So they're constantly looking to fill that hole with a partner. There's more to it than that, but that's just a basic overview of the kind of types and the arrangements I see with the yin-yang type pattern. And you might have heard yourself being described there. Not just who you are, but who you tend to find as partners. And as confusing as it might be, you might hear yourself being both. Sometimes even in the same relationship. 
I'd be both avoidant and clingy with my partners when I was younger. You know, if they were cold to me, suddenly I'd chase. And then if they warmed up to me, suddenly I'm running away. It was very confusing for me. I almost, I didn't know what I really wanted. But what I kind of wanted was I wanted connection, but I didn't want lack of security. And I couldn't find the two because you have to take a risk to connect with people. So as soon as the risk went up, I ran away. And as I ran away, I got lonely and I'd run back. And then the risk would go up and I'd run away again. So I was just this fluctuating thing back and forth. But overall, I was avoidant. In the end, I preferred being on my own with no one to hurt me, even though I told myself the opposite. Now, like I said, sometimes I'll see mirror images where two of the same type are together. You'll all have known an explosive couple that just fight and bicker all the time. Equally aggressive and dominant, equally controlling, you know, equally kind of like unable to listen or empathize with each other. Or you might see two people pleasers together. This is hard to see because it looks really harmonious. Happy all the time. Super polite. Oh no, I'll get it. No, you let me get it. No, I got it last time. You know, it's this kind of thing where they're just constantly trying to please each other and everybody else. And it can actually look like they've got a good thing going on because they look pleasurable all the time. You know, they look like they're having happy emotions all the time. But you watch them long enough. The divorce is on the way. I promise. <laughs> you know. Deep down, there's some shit there. They're not fucking each other. They're not talking properly. There's lots of resentment being harbored. There's lots of passive-aggressive little snipes and swipes at each other. Lots of covert contracts where expectations aren't spoken and then they're disappointed. There's a lot of stuff you can't see when you go to meet them for a coffee, you know? And you can get to avoidance. You know, avoidance get along well with other avoidance. That's where you get that, like, fuck-buddy relationship. Two people who don't want to settle down. But they don't want to be alone either. Um, those on-off relationships where people go away and come back together and so on. People who cheat on each other a lot. That's two avoidance together. And you can occasionally get two, two anxious styles together. Two needy people who are needy for each other. And funny enough, that kind of works. I mean, it's kind of desperate and needy and it's awful to be their children. But with each other, it's kind of, they've found the ideal partner, the person who can't get enough of them. Um, but it's very rare. I don't see that very often. I think probably because they're all staying home, just crawling all over each other and they never go out. You know, who knows? So the funny thing is you can actually maintain a relationship with all of these dysfunctions. You can be married your entire life with these dysfunctions. Or you can at least like stay together, even if it's miserable. What I'm saying is it's not the best available option. Like Just because you can make a relationship work, it doesn't mean that's the limit of enjoyment of life. It doesn't mean that your quality of life can't be enhanced at least a little bit. But as I say in the, in the email, if you have partners and their behavior is unhealthy or unhelpful or damaging to the relationship, the first thing you've got to realize, hey, me too. It must be me as well. It must be at least 50% me, even if it looks like 100% them. Even if you're sitting at home being a good little girl while your partner goes out and takes drugs and cheats on you and then comes home and beats you and everybody's like, oh my God, you're the victim. you got to look in the mirror and go, well, why did I choose a guy like that? Why do I stay with a guy like that? Why do I tolerate his behavior? Why am I not courageous enough to leave? Why don't I respect myself enough to stand my ground or stay away from guys like this? 
you got to look in the mirror and say, look, I'm 50% too. Even though he looks worse and does worse things on paper, he's not more fucked up than me. We're equals. So one of the hardest, most sort of difficult truths you have to face is that you are the fucked up one in relationships as much as your partner is. But it's the key to freedom. When you realize it's you, then you can do something about it. It's not bad luck anymore. It's not just, I hope the right one comes along. It's like, no, no, if I get my shit sorted, then my only options will be good ones. But if I don't get my shit sorted, the right one's never going to come along. There's no one that's going to rescue you. You understand? No one can rescue you from your own bullshit because the only people who are going to come to you are the ones who are equally dysfunctional. And they can't save you. They can't even fucking save themselves. Okay? Unless, and we'll talk about this in a minute, two of you work together. I seriously recommend that anyone listening to this and resonating with some of the dysfunctional types that I'm talking about kind of goes on a bit of a, what should we call it, a vacation from relationships and from the pursuit of relationships. And I mean romantic, you know, committed relationships. Ultimately, you'll have to be with partners to get this shit sorted you have to do it in real life with real people but before you even get into that situation you've got to know what you're bringing to the table you you have to understand yourself first before you put someone else at risk by being in a relationship with them at risk of being affected by your issues you have to know what you are who you are how this affects your relationships who you're attracted to and why and so i recommend for most people listening to this, a 6-12 to 12 month sabbatical from committed relationships and or the pursuit of committed relationships. If you're a serial monogamist, I'm talking about being single. If you're someone who's single but desperately chases people, I'm talking about just stop chasing. I'm not talking about stopping socializing. In fact, if anything, you've got to interact even more with your preferred uh, romantic partner's gender, you know? but not trying to get into anything with anyone, not allowing it to become something committed because you need to figure out your bullshit first. Avoidant types, you'll be fine with this, you'll love it, but it also means, you know, being really honest with people and intimate with them, which you're not going to love so much. Now, if you're already in a relationship and you really want to make it work, that is an option. It's not sort of a death sentence, but it's only going to work on a few conditions. One is the two of you both take responsibility for bringing your own issues into the relationship. If one of you does not do that, you have no chance, really. And if you both don't do it, well, you'll just suffer together or break up. But you can't have one person work on themselves while the other one goes, yeah, you should because I'm fine or refuses to do anything. If you guys won't work on your own shit, but together equally, you have no chance. Because the strongest one wins. The person trying to grow is not going to be the strongest one. It's hard to grow. It's hard to change who we are. It's hard to, it's hard to transform our behavior. We become quite fragile and vulnerable when we're in that change. It's like a hermit crab switching shells. You know, that moment between shell, you're completely unprotected, easily influenced and hurt. So if someone's trying to grow while the other one's just stubbornly staying the same, The growth person's not going to be stronger than the stubborn one. So they'll ultimately get dragged back to being the same. 
You know, if you've got a real aggressive person with a passive person and the passive person's trying to stand up for themselves more, but the aggressive person won't back down, the aggressive person won't become a little more kind, they're just going to dominate that passive person who makes their meek attempts. Because the passive person isn't trained, isn't practiced, they need a safe environment to practice in. So if their partner won't provide that safe environment, they're really just, most likely they're just going to get crushed back down. Because they're just, they're not good at it yet. So the two of you, I mean, and I, I honestly recommend that if you're in a relationship right now, you sit down, you play your partner this podcast, and you give them your honest feedback on who's what, taking that 50-50 responsibility, and both of you just say, okay, what do we each need to work on on our own? And how do we work on that together, essentially? So if I'm a people pleaser, and I'm with a narcissist, the narcissist has to work on being more empathetic and more kind, more caring and more considerate. And I need to work on being more assertive, more self-serving, more honest. And the two of us need to help each other work on those things equally. But we can't do the work for each other. The people pleaser can't tell the narcissist how to be more considerate. It can't be, people pleaser doesn't become the relationship coach. You might actually have to get a relationship coach dan at brojo.org in case you're wondering or you know you guys need to work on your own shit on your own you just give each other feedback and support but you don't actually try to change each other because that work has to be done by the individual i've actually seen partnerships come through that quite strongly as long as they caught the problem early unfortunately most of the people who email me you know it's at the death stage they've already tried so much on their own they were too sort of stubborn or uninformed to get help from an outside source. So by the time they come to me, I can't help them. It's too late. The relationship's just too fucked. You know, there's too many bad memories, too much resentment, too many sort of bad patterns and traits. And usually because one person's coming to me, the other person isn't even on board with changing, which makes it impossible to do anything. So those people, I'm usually just coaching them on how to exit the relationship so that they can find a better one later on. If... You can work on it together, you've got a chance. If you can't work on it together, then you've got a choice. Either keep suffering forever, or for as long as the relationship lasts, and just eat shit, basically. Or break up and work on some stuff on your own, like we talked about. Take a sabbatical from trying to get into a relationship, and start working on whatever your thing is. Like if you're a narcissist, start working on kindness and empathy. If you're an anxious type, start working on being more independent. You know, if you're a passive person, start working on standing up for yourself. You can do that work in any social environment. You can do it at work, you can do it with your friends, you can do it while dating, as long as you're not trying to get into a relationship. And you kind of build up that repertoire so that the people you're attracted to and are attractive to will start to change. And you'll start to find better fit, healthier connections. And when that starts to happen, when you start to realizing your dating life is filled with genuinely confident, healthy people, not people who put on an act, but people who really are this, they're doing good things with their lives, they get a lot of glowing, positive reports from the people who love them, they're clearly somebody who's got their bullshit sorted, they're open and honest and respectful, they're not needy or chasing or manipulative, you start to see like a pattern of people like this coming into your life, and you're feeling confident in yourself, you can realize, hey... Maybe I got my shit sorted finally. Now I can start thinking about a relationship if I want. 
One of the final points I made in the email, you're never going to be in a relationship that doesn't have problems. Two people trying to spend all their time together and share their lives, there's got to be friction there. In fact, I'd say if you're not having any friction, you're definitely naive. You're both overlooking something, refusing to deal with something, being untruthful about something, and it's going to come up and bite you eventually. But if you're two healthy, confident, genuine people, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be things you disagree on. There's going to be like times where you caught each other in the wrong mood and you didn't realize you were pushing their buttons. And there's going to be difficulties from the external world. God, my wife and I have dealt with so much. I got kicked out of the country because of immigration things. She went through depression. We've had people try to break us up. We've had so much shit come and hit us. But because we've both taken ownership of working together on ourselves and on our relationship, each one of these conflicts made us stronger. But that didn't mean that during the conflict, we weren't having problems. Okay, We've had a few ugly conversations. We've had a few bad afternoons feeling awful. But we kept coming back and saying, okay, let's try talking about it again. Let's work on it. We got this. We're a team. You know, I take responsibility for doing this. And she'll take responsibility for doing that. We both put it behind us and try to work on it, have another crack. You know, a great example was the first time my wife and I tried to do budgeting together and talking about sharing our finances. We did this quite early on. We did this before we uh, were affianced. And I'm an avoidant type, so sharing my money with someone else just pushed all my buttons. The idea that someone could choose how I spend my money or have some access to it in any way, you know, that was just really, really uncomfortable for me. And, you know, for her, me not sharing and not being willing to kind of like let her in and not giving her any control, that really provoked her anxiety. So our first conversation around budgeting was awful we had to cut it short i think we only survived about 15 minutes before we had to call it off you know we had another attempt a little while later on and that wasn't much better but at least we got to the end of it and we had another attempt and this time because we'd finally made some sort of progress we talked also about the issues we're having we'd we'd had some separate discussions around why it was hard to have these conversations and we just kept working on it and now We budget together every month, and there's really no conflict there. We've found how to get along in this space. We've built up trust with each other. And most importantly, we've had a lot of little conversations about why this is difficult for us and sort of got our demons out and helped each other with them. And there's nothing special about us. Anybody can do this, as long as you're both 50-50 willing to work on it. As I said, the final point in the email is, when you look at your partners, you learn about yourself. And there's actually a kind of mirror that they represent. As I said in the email, if they're disrespecting you, then you don't respect yourself. That's a classic one. A person who respects themselves, genuinely, it's very rare for them to be disrespected by others, especially face-to-face. They might still get some shit on the internet, but their body language and presence... You know, to be around someone who's confident in themselves, it makes you really hesitate about bullying them or giving them shit. Bullies don't like that vibe. They stay well away from it. So if you're being disrespected by others and that's a pattern, the problem isn't them. It's you. You don't respect yourself yet and it shows. 
It sends out that vibe through your body language, your choice of words, everything. It tells other people, like, you can walk on me. I'm not going to do anything about it. So if your partners are disrespectful, you need to work on self-respect. You need to find a way to impress yourself, stand up for yourself, and build that. If you're with people who lie, tell secrets, cheat on you, that kind of thing, that means that you're not fully honest. Maybe you're not fully honest with yourself. But the fact is you're, you're living in a world that encourages and welcomes dishonest people, which means you're not living in an honest world. And you create your reality. So you've created a dishonest world. The most likely thing that's happening if you're constantly being conned and scammed and lied to is that you're not honest with yourself about who you are. Maybe you don't admit to yourself that you're easily manipulated. Maybe you put on a good face for everyone and pretend that everything's cool all the time and that you're easygoing. Or maybe you're full of shit too, and you like to lie and manipulate and deceive people, even though you tell yourself it's for a good reason. However honest your partners are is about how honest you are, probably. And as I said, if they're avoidant of intimacy, then you've got intimacy problems. You're either too far in or too far out. You're either kind of like an oversharer who dumps everything on people and you know, doesn't give them any space to exist. Or you're an undershare, it keeps your cards to your chest, doesn't let anybody in. But all you know is if you're finding people are flaking on you, they won't get intimate with you, they won't be honest with you, there's something you're doing that makes it unsafe to be that way with you. So as I said at the end of the email, move up together or move on alone. If you're with someone and they're as willing to work on their bullshit as you are on yours, and you're both in it together and you want to take this on like a team, then yeah, you can do that. Get yourself a therapist or a coach to make sure that you do it the kind of the right way and don't hurt each other in the process. But it can be done and it will actually make for a very strong relationship in the long term. Even stronger than two people who come in with a naturally secure attachment style. You know, it's it's kind of better to earn it together. You know, Lucy and I, my wife and I, we've been through a lot of hard trials and stuff and that's why our relationship's so solid. We've been tested We've been tempered by reality. We've been put to the test in a big way, and we passed. If you're not with a partner that you can do that with, you can still do the work on your own. Figure out your styles and your types, and then in your everyday interactions with family, co-workers, friends, dates, start working on yourself. If you're passive, work on boundary setting. If you're a people pleaser, work on fulfilling your own needs. If you're a narcissist, work on listening and caring. If you're an avoidant, work on opening up to people and so on. There's plenty of great books and solid advice out there for each of these different types and variations. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, you can always get in touch with me, dan at brojo.org. I'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.